Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of underage sex that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Agnes Ritchie decided that she thoroughly enjoyed her life. She was the wife of the caretaker at Victoria Park in Christchurch, New Zealand. And that day, June 22, 1954, was sunny for the winter solstice. At the moment, she was running the tea kiosk, getting ice cream for two eager young customers. They were just darling. She could tell they felt so grown up, ordering sweets all on their own. Then, screams broke the stillness of the hilltop. Two young women ran up to the tea room from the direction of the trails, covered in something dark and thick. At first, Agnes thought it might be mud, but as she got closer, she could see it was certainly blood. A lot of it. It was all over their hands and clothing, splattered across their faces. They were calling out for help. There had been a terrible accident. Agnes sent two customers to get her husband while she tried to calm the girls down enough to find out what had happened. The taller one was hysterical, pacing around and fanning herself as if she might faint. But the shorter, dark-haired one was eerily still. The poor thing must have been in shock. Pale as a ghost, the dark-haired girl asked Agnes to please help them. It's mummy, she said. She's terribly hurt. She's dead. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a Spotify original from Parcast. In the legal definition, a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This week, we'll discuss the intense borderline obsessive friendship of Pauline Parker and Juliet Hume. We'll see what happened when their parents threatened to separate the girls, destroying their shared fantasy life. Next week, We'll talk about the gruesome consequences of Pauline and Juliet's lethal plan to stay together. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, starting May 8th, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by The Weather Channel. 
The key to solving any mystery? Smart decisions based on the facts. In the case of the weather's effect on your well-being, turn to the Weather Channel app. It clues you in on how weather shapes your mood, health, and productivity with insights built on reliable forecast data to help you thrive. Because mystery belongs in true crime, not weather. Be a force of nature with the Weather Channel app. Juliet Hume's early childhood was marred by war and estrangement. She was two years old during the Blitz, a protracted bombing campaign perpetuated by the Germans against the UK. Baby Juliet and her family along with others from her neighborhood, spent the better part of nine months in and out of a dank underground bomb shelter while the Germans rained hell on the city above. For months afterward, Juliet had terrible nightmares termed bomb shock. Her mother, Hilda Hume, could only pray the experience hadn't scared her daughter too deeply. As the conflict raged on, Juliet developed into a sensitive child with a strong imagination. Instead of facing the reality of war, she exchanged it for a fantasy where she could go anywhere and be anything. But when she was about six, Juliet contracted pneumonia and bronchitis from harsh winter nights spent in the bomb shelter. Doctors told her parents the best way to save her life was to get her to a warmer climate. Hilda had just given birth to another baby, Jonathan. So according to one family friend, Juliet went to Barbados alone to live with a nurse until the end of the war in 1945. When Juliet returned to England, her mother was preoccupied with caring for a toddler and her father was always busy at work as a nuclear physicist. Likely desperate for the attention she'd craved while away, Juliet acted out. Hilda, to whom motherhood had never come naturally, couldn't deal with the willful and temperamental girl. Juliet was sent away yet again in 1947 to live with family friends in the Bahamas. She stayed there for about a year until Henry started a new job in New Zealand and the entire Hume clan relocated. Between the chaos of World War II and multiple childhood moves, the instability may have impacted Juliet's emotional development. Before I go into Juliet's psychology, please note, I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. Although attachment theory wasn't prominent in psychology until 1958, its creator John Bowlby got the idea from working as a psychiatrist at the Child Guidance Clinic in London in the 1930s. Around 1939, he warned about the potential dangers of evacuation programs that separated young children from their mothers. Attachment is a bond between two people that promotes and provides closeness and safety between the two. Our earliest experiences with attachment are with parents and caregivers, and positive early attachment experiences are vital for a child's social and emotional development. When these early experiences are negative, a child can develop a host of behavioral and personality issues. Citing Bowlby, psychotherapists have described how disruption of attachment during the crucial first three years of life can lead to the inability to form meaningful emotional relationships coupled with chronic anger, poor impulse control, and a lack of remorse. Psychologists Terry Levy and Michael Orlins wrote that in the absence of secure attachment development, 
kids might exhibit a lack of conscience, self-gratification at the expense of others, lack of responsibility, dishonesty, and a blatant disregard for the rules of family and society. Growing up in war-torn England and being sent away from her family for extended periods of time certainly disrupted Juliet's ability to form secure attachments to her parents. It's not surprising then that she grew up to be a moody and temperamental child. By October 16, 1948, the Humes were reunited as a family in Christchurch, New Zealand. Henry Hume had just been appointed the head of Canterbury University College. Juliet was 10 years old and began attending St. Margaret's College Junior School. Though Hilda hoped that a fresh start in New Zealand would help Juliet make new friends, the girl remained disinterested in her peers. She preferred being on her own and daydreaming to playing with other girls. In her mind, Juliet had all the control she lacked in the real world. She was the center of every story, a princess or someone equally important and powerful. Her imagination was full of characters who adored her and did her bidding. Juliet had no need for real friends, despite her mother's pestering. By February 1952, 13-year-old Juliet began attending Christchurch Girls High School, her fourth in as many years. Girls High was a local public academy known for its social and academic rigor. Because it was a state-sponsored institution, the student body of Girls High was made up of a wide range of social backgrounds. It was here that Juliet Hume met Pauline Parker, then known as Pauline Reaper. Pauline was also a strange loner type. When she was five years old, she contracted osteomyelitis, a bone marrow infection in her leg. This was 1943 before antibiotics were widely available, so an infection to this degree was life-threatening. Pauline spent nearly a year alone in the hospital, receiving treatment that ranged from pain management to operations to drain the infection. After a painful recovery, Pauline was left with a pronounced scar and a permanent limp. At nine years old, she was finally able to begin her education, attending Christ Church Normal School near her home in the city center. There were so few children living in that area at the time that Pauline was the only student in her class for two years. It wasn't just the lack of options that kept her from making friends though. She was known for having a short temper, throwing fits whenever she didn't get her way. Like Juliet, her opportunity to form secure attachments had been taken from her by prolonged illness and isolation. Her outbursts and aggressive behavior could have been symptoms of a sense of helplessness. Pauline Reaper's family came from a much lower rung of the social ladder than Juliet's. Though they lived in a large house near the city center, it was a shabby and untidy place. Both of Pauline's parents worked to support the family. Her father, Bert Reaper, was manager of the local fishmonger's shop. Her mother, Honora, worked as a secretary until 1949, when she became unexpectedly pregnant with a third daughter at the age of 42. Pauline was 11 when her younger sister, Rosemary, was born. The joy of a new baby was cut short, however, when they discovered she was born with what is now known as Down syndrome. 
The family took in boarders to try to make up for the income lost when Honora was forced to quit her secretary position. Still, money was tight and the demands of keeping house and caring for a child with a disability took their toll on Honora. Though she was trying to do what was best for her family, Honora was often spread thin and easily irritated, especially by Pauline, whose temper wasn't reserved only for her peers. No matter how Honora tried to control Pauline's behavior, it only perpetuated their dysfunctional cycle of fight and make up. Honora would eventually feel guilty for taking her frustrations out on her daughter, offering Pauline small gifts or treats as an apology. Pauline came to count on this pattern as a method for getting her way. It was little surprise then that by the time Pauline Reaper started at Girls High in 1952, she was an angry and rebellious young woman. She quickly became known for her poor attitude and tendency to talk back to teachers. Unlike Juliet, her aloofness didn't give her an air of attractive unattainability. The other girls just thought she was weird. On the other hand, Juliet walked the halls, sure of her superiority in both looks and intellect. She barely deigned to give anyone, even teachers, her time and attention, which was why it was shocking to the girls in their class when out of everyone, Juliet Hume chose Pauline to be her only friend. It began as conversations during PE. While the other girls played hockey and basketball or practiced swimming, Juliet and Pauline were both exempted because of their health issues. They bonded over the agony and isolation of their childhood illnesses, understanding each other in a way no one else could. None of the other girls in their year had been forsaken by family, left to the care of strangers in their most vulnerable moments. They had both come within a hair's breadth of an early death. Only they could understand how special that made them. They must have been spared for a reason. They were meant for something, touched by destiny. In each other, the girls found all the intimacy and acceptance they'd been denied everywhere else. Pauline had always wanted a best friend, but she never dreamed it would be someone like Juliet Hume. She was keenly aware that Juliet had her pick of the school, so she would do or say or be anything she needed in order to keep Juliet for herself. Luckily, the girls shared more than tragic childhoods. Having spent so much time alone and bedridden, both of them had excellent imaginations. They also loved the same books and films. Juliet told Pauline about her writing, showing her poems and a novel in progress. Shortly after, Pauline herself began a novel. On one of their early adventures outside of school, the girls rode their bikes away from Christchurch into the surrounding countryside. They stopped in an unoccupied field where they felt certain they were the only ones around. In a fit of inspiration, Juliet kicked off her shoes and removed her stockings, wading into the wild grasses and flowers. At first, Pauline watched as she started to spin and dance. Juliet called out for Pauline to join her. Shedding her inhibitions along with her stockings, 
Pauline threw out her arms and whirled around with her friend. Soon, they were lightheaded and giggling. Tingling exhaustion crept through their muscles, yet they kept up the movement. It seemed like as they danced, their bodies were breaking down into their molecular parts, flying away from them to rejoin the rest of nature. Many religions have rituals, some centered on dancing, intended to induce ecstasy as a way of experiencing or connecting to the divine. That day in the fields, the girls felt entirely entwined with God, with nature, and most importantly, with each other. Pauline would later say, that afternoon their friendship turned into an indissoluble bond. Up next, the girls' friendship and fantasy life continue to escalate. Hi, it's Carter from Parcast, and I'm hosting the new limited series, Hollywood Scandals. We all know that Tinseltown is the land of glitz and glamour, but look closer past the allure of bright lights and red carpets. There, you'll find a more disturbing tale, one filled with tragedies and transgressions so damaging they've turned hopes and dreams into high-profile nightmares. Every Monday on this Spotify original, discover the real-life dramas of some of entertainment's biggest names. From the mysterious drowning of Natalie Wood and the murder trials of comedian Fatty Arbuckle to the star clients of Hollywood Madam Heidi Fleiss. Each episode of Hollywood Scandals has been curated from shows across the ParCast network, covering over a century's worth of controversies, from the silent era into the digital age. Fame and fortune may be fleeting, but scandals, they stand the test of time. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Hollywood Scandals. Listen free only on Spotify. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Now, back to the story. When 14-year-old Juliet Hume and Pauline Reaper met in 1952, they quickly developed an intense friendship. The things that made them different from other girls their age, the injustice of their childhoods and love of make-believe brought them together. In each other, they found intimacy they'd never felt before. Even still, The girls came from very different economic backgrounds. Though her home life had its problems, Pauline had never been unhappy with her family's lack of social standing. That came to an abrupt end the first time she visited the Hume's home in Ilum. The house and its 53-acre estate was the likes of which Pauline had only ever seen in films. Surrounded by manicured lawns and beautiful gardens, with a river running through the grounds, It was a magical escape from her poverty-ridden city life. Juliet's family could not have been more different from Pauline's. 
Dr. and Mrs. Hume were more upper class and sophisticated than anyone she had ever met. The Humes had a household staff, so everything was always tidy, the very picture of perfection. Suddenly, everything about Pauline's own life was a disappointment and an embarrassment. Her parents were uneducated, simple folk, and their home was run down. Pauline made it her mission to spend all the time she could with Juliet and the Humes. Juliet was more than comfortable with this too. She couldn't imagine living the way the Reapers did and found it hard not to turn up her nose at the ever-present fish smell that seemed to linger in the air of their home. As the relationship between Juliet and Pauline grew, Pauline frequently spent the night and, at times, even stayed the entire weekend. When school let out for the summer holiday, Pauline began sneaking out of her home at night and riding to Ilum. Juliet would meet her in the garden with wine stolen from her parents' collection, and they would picnic under the stars. Other times, the girls would take secret midnight rides to the nearest beach on their bikes. More and more, it seemed the rules no longer applied to them. When school started again in February 1953, their relationship came under scrutiny by the headmistress of Girls High, Miss Stewart. At school, Juliet and Pauline were more often than not found sitting apart from the other girls in their class, having long private conversations out of earshot. They would walk the campus holding hands. Miss Stewart felt it prudent to have a conversation with Mrs. Hume regarding the girls. She worried their relationship was moving outside the bounds of a healthy female friendship. At the time, same-sex romance was considered not only a sin, but also a mental illness in much of conservative Christchurch, New Zealand. Juliet and Pauline's classmates, on the other hand, never thought twice about the friends. According to one, it was considered normal for girls to have crushes on each other. It was all part of life at a single-sex school. It wouldn't have occurred to them to think there was anything sexual going on between the pair. For her part, Mrs. Hume wasn't concerned either. She told the headmistress in no uncertain terms that she wouldn't be interfering with her daughter's friendships. In fact, she went so far as to invite Pauline along on the family's Easter holiday that year. It was on this coastal holiday that Juliet and Pauline would make one of their most important and mystical discoveries. Port Levy was not a fashionable place to holiday, but that just meant the Humes had the hills and beaches to themselves. Juliet and Pauline took full advantage of the uninterrupted time far from prying city eyes. They spent all day and night hiking in the hills or walking along the beach, dreaming together. The less time they spent sleeping, the wilder and more unhinged their musings became. On April 3rd, 1953, Pauline wrote in her diary that she and Juliet had discovered a place they called the Fourth World. We realize now that we have had the key in our possession for about six months, but we only realized it on the day of the death of Christ. According to Pauline, they saw a gateway in the clouds that showed them a beautiful island where everything was full of peace and bliss. The fourth world 
they decided, was where they would go when they died. They were two of 10 people in the world who had an extra part of their brain that allowed them to see the fourth world. The workings of the fourth world were likely influenced by the philosophy of Rudolf Steiner, an Austrian mystic and claimed clairvoyant. Juliet had briefly attended a boarding school that taught his beliefs, which included the existence of a spiritual world that was only accessible to a select few who had been taught enhanced consciousness. The girls already believed that they were unappreciated geniuses operating on levels regular people couldn't understand. Their access to the fourth world only served as further proof of their evolved nature. Juliet and Pauline hoped the public would come to understand a bit of their brilliance when their novels were finally published. Even after the holiday, the girls spent more time writing than sleeping. If they weren't up until dawn working on their stories, they were sneaking out to meet each other. Time spent sleeping could be better spent planning their future. Juliet and Pauline had it all figured out. They would move to the United States together and become writers. Their novels would be wildly successful and eventually turned into movies. They never doubted the greatness that awaited them together. But for the moment, their plans were put on hold. Dr. Hume was summoned to a conference in London. Mrs. Hume insisted on accompanying him. It had been five years since either of them had been to England. They planned to be away for three months, from the end of May until late August of 1953. Honora agreed to host Juliet for that time. The girls must have been ecstatic at the thought of living together for so long, even if it was at the Reapers and not at Ilum. But the excitement was short-lived. On May 15, 1953, Juliet was diagnosed with tuberculosis and taken to Kashmir Sanatorium for treatment. Tuberculosis was no longer a death sentence, but the treatments were painful and recovery was slow. Despite their 14-year-old daughter returning to the hospital with yet another serious illness, the Humes still went on their trip. It must have been a painful reminder for Juliet of the years of her childhood spent sick and alone. This time, however, she had Pauline. The girls wrote to each other constantly. Pauline kept Juliet informed about day-to-day life and also had the idea that they should write to each other as characters from their novels. The exercise might have been the only enjoyable way Juliet had to pass the hours spent alone in bed. For three long months, Juliet languished in the hospital until her parents returned. When she was released, Juliet was overjoyed to see Pauline. The past months had shown her that Pauline was the only person who truly loved her. She was beyond angry with her parents for abandoning her yet again. She shunned her parents, ignoring them and insulting them so they'd see how much she didn't need them. All she needed was Pauline. At this point, the mothers became concerned about the girl's relationship. Hilda was deeply hurt by Juliet's behavior. She seemed to have finally noticed that Pauline was the only person that mattered at all to Juliet. 
She remembered her conversation with Miss Stewart, who she had been so quick to dismiss at the time. Even though the girls hadn't been able to see each other more than three or so times while Juliet was in the hospital, she felt certain a shift had occurred in the relationship while she was away. Honora worried about the weight Pauline had lost while she hadn't been able to see Juliet. The girl seemed to have stopped eating, or if she did eat, she was sick soon after. The Humes recommended Pauline see a doctor, but he couldn't find a medical reason for such illness. Today, Pauline's behavior would be recognized as an eating disorder, probably bulimia nervosa, which involves binging and purging to lose weight. According to the Mayo Clinic, depression and anxiety are often closely linked to eating disorders as sufferers tend to feel negatively about themselves. Traumatic events or environmental factors could also contribute to the development of a disorder. Pauline's home life, specifically her relationship with her mother, was known to be fraught. With Juliet in the hospital and nowhere to escape to, it might have been too much for Pauline to handle on her own. Since the doctor couldn't find a reason, Honora decided her daughter was being stubborn once again. She told Pauline that if she didn't get better soon, she wouldn't be allowed to be friends with Juliet anymore. The threat was too far. Pauline wrote in her diary that she wished she could die. She had, in fact, been having suicidal thoughts for a while, writing, I have decided over the last two or three weeks that it would be the best thing that could happen altogether, and the thought of death is not fearsome. To add insult to injury, the Humes returned to Port Levy for the Christmas holiday. Only this time, Pauline was not invited. Coming up, threats to Juliet and Pauline's friendship come from all sides, and the girls become increasingly desperate to destroy anything and anyone getting in the way of their future. Now, back to the story. By January of 1954, 15-year-olds Juliet Hume and Pauline Reaper were as intimate as two friends could possibly be. The closeness of their relationship, however, had gone from touching to worrisome. Concerns for their health put their parents on edge. The mothers made a few attempts to keep the girls apart through January of 1954, but this only set Juliet and Pauline closer to the edge. Both were already prone to intense mood swings and tantrums when not given their way, and their parents were threatening to take away what they saw as their only source of comfort and security. Pauline became suicidal, writing about what a relief death would be if she wasn't allowed to be with Juliet. Hilda Hume no longer allowed Pauline to stay overnight at Ilum. When Pauline acted out, Honora Reaper forbade her from visiting Juliet. Each time, Pauline grew increasingly angry and frustrated with her mother's interference. During one particularly volatile fight, Honora forbade her from going to Ilum until she was eight stone and more cheerful. Pauline wished Tenora would just die. She wrote in her diary, dozens of people are dying all the time, thousands, so why not mother and father too? 
Despite her murderous musings, Pauline knew a few days of feigning sweetness usually helped Tenora get over her anger and give in to Pauline's wishes. She was allowed to return to Ilem and resume what she saw as her rightful place in the Hume household. Despite the months of tumult, by mid-February, things were pretty much back to their relative normal. Hilda seemingly gave up on her attempts to police the girls. Perhaps she was distracted. It was a well-known secret in Christchurch that Hilda was having an affair with a supposed family friend, Bill Perry. By this time, Hilda had moved him in to the caretaker's house on the island grounds. According to Perry, Juliet was inconsolable for days whenever Pauline left Ilum. If she wasn't in bed, she demanded Hilda's undivided attention, attention Hilda much preferred to be giving Perry. With Hilda preoccupied, the girls were once again free to spend days on end together at Ilum. They were back to writing and dreaming of the future. They had decided it was time to get serious about moving to America and pursuing their dreams of becoming famous novelists. In their nearly two years of friendship, each girl had written two or three novels in their entirety. Dr. Hume had taken some of Juliet's writing to work with him to show his colleagues. He was actually impressed and saw potential in her skills, which only bolstered Juliet's confidence and Pauline's by extension. The girls were still sleeping less than five hours a night, staying up to plan their move on top of their usual dreaming. They needed money and discussed everything from selling Juliet's horse to becoming sex workers. Sometime in March, fate handed them a golden opportunity. Juliet and Pauline were having lunch in the island dining room when Hilda appeared in the door. Their conversation stopped short. They weren't ready for anyone to know of their plans. As Hilda stood there, Bill Perry appeared and tried to put his arm around her. Hilda shrugged him off quickly. She tried to whisper, but the girl still heard her telling him, not now, the children are here. Pauline looked to Juliet, unsure how to react to this revelation. Clearly, the two were having an affair. Rather than seeming upset, however, Juliet had a look on her face that Pauline knew all too well. She had an idea. All they had to do was catch her mother and Perry in the act. Then the girls could blackmail them for all the money they needed. It took until almost the end of April, but Juliet successfully found the two in bed one night. She called Pauline the next day with her good news. Hilda told Juliet that she and Perry were in love and Dr. Hume knew all about it. In response, Juliet attempted her blackmail, telling Hilda about the plan to go to America. In the end, she got more than she bargained for. Shortly after the incident, Dr. Hume took the girls aside and asked to hear about their plans. That was when he dropped the bombshell. The Hume family was leaving New Zealand by the end of the year. Adding insult to injury, he and Mrs. Hume were going to divorce. The girls made a vow to each other that they would do whatever it took to stay together. 
The Humes decided that while Dr. Hume looked for a new job back in England, Juliet would be sent to South Africa to stay with her aunt. It would be better for her health to avoid the cold London winter. She would rejoin the rest of the family in the spring. Initially, Dr. Hume made it sound like Pauline would be able to come with them. At one point, Hilda commented on how lovely it would be when, quote, we are all back in England. According to Pauline, Hilda even asked if she thought she would like England. Hilda was probably referring to the entire Hume family when she said we all, and maybe asking if Pauline might like England enough to visit Juliet. But if that's what she meant, it wasn't what Pauline heard. At this point, Pauline believed the only thing that would keep her from going with Juliet was her mother. Honora was still hesitant to let Pauline go to Islam, let alone leave the country. On April 28th, after another round of fighting, Pauline's frustration reached its boiling point. Her mother was only an obstacle to her happiness. She could see no other way around it. It was time to get rid of her, permanently. Kathleen M. Heidi, PhD, identified three categories of kids who committed parasite, severely abused children, dangerously antisocial children, and severely mentally ill children. Though underage children were less likely to commit such a crime, the ones who did primarily fell into the first two categories. A dangerously antisocial child sees their parent as an obstacle to their goals and kills to get their own way. Typically, these kids had a pattern of past behavior that included defying authority, committing petty crimes like theft, and generally disobeying all rules. Pauline had been living by her own rules for years now. In addition, a study about homicidal ideation in children and adolescents in the Journal of Pediatrics found that among children who present with homicidal ideation, many had red flags in their development history, including behavioral disorders like attachment disorder. Pauline didn't immediately tell Juliet that she had decided to kill her mother, but she didn't wait too long, calling to talk it over within a couple days. Juliet was hesitant at first, but eventually came around. Honora was certainly the problem, and Juliet wasn't going to let her friend solve it alone. The idea didn't progress beyond that for the moment. They were content to simply discuss it as an option. Meanwhile, Dr. Hume requested to move up his resignation to July 31st. This would allow him to take Juliet to South Africa on his way to England. They would leave by ship on July 3rd. He continued to encourage the girls to think he had every intention of taking Pauline with them. He even told them that he would write a letter asking Honora's permission himself, though there is no evidence he ever did. Everyone knew full well that Honora would never say yes. The Humes were counting on it so they wouldn't have to be the bad guys. Dr. and Mrs. Hume both knew that Honora was as eager to separate the girls as they were. Finally, this nuisance of a relationship would be behind them all. They drastically and tragically underestimated the girls' devotion to each other. Around this time, the girls' make-believe escalated into sexual role-play. 
They spent nearly every night they were together, acting out with each other how they imagined their favorite celebrities, who they referred to as the saints, might make love. Their most loved saint was actor James Mason, known for playing evil, villainous characters. This was on top of their other nightly activities, such as writing and scheming. Their already minimal sleep became almost non-existent. In June, with their time running out, the girls grew increasingly frantic. They began shoplifting from the stores in town. When they nearly got caught, they were thrilled to manage to lie their way out of it. On top of all this, they convinced themselves they were telepathic. Their new telepathic abilities came to them, they decided, because they were mad. They saw themselves as completely insane, and they considered anyone they admired to be so as well. Even Dr. Hume, according to them, was mad as a March hare. Their madness also made them immune to all sorts of things. They could no longer be disgusted and felt nothing resembling a conscience. Juliet and Pauline finally felt free of the constraints society placed on the sane. This freedom made it easier to actually plan how they were going to, in Pauline's words, moiter mother. It was June 19th, and Juliet would be gone in a few short weeks. The time had come. Pauline had been dreaming of it for months now. If she was truly going to follow Juliet to South Africa, and eventually to England, they needed to deal with the problem that was Honora Reaper. Juliet was nervous about the idea, but not enough to try to stop Pauline. Honora had been nothing but terrible to Pauline for the entire time Juliet had known her. If Pauline wanted her dead, then that was what they were going to do. Juliet Hume woke up on the morning of June 22, 1954, not excited exactly, but at peace. After weeks of not knowing what was going to happen to her or Pauline once she left New Zealand, a weight had been lifted. She and Pauline came up with a plan to fix everything on their own, as usual. Juliet snuck half a paving brick from the yard into her bag before joining her father, who was waiting in the car to give her a ride. She actually apologized for keeping him, making up a tale about modeling her new skirt for mom and Bill in the kitchen. Juliet's mood was so light, she even indulged her father's idle chatter as they meandered along the road into town. The universe seemed to know it was an important day too. The winter sky was a brilliant blue, not a cloud in sight. The shining sun seemed to give her its approval. When Pauline answered the door, her usually dour face shone with a rare smile. Juliet couldn't help but beam back at her dearest friend. It would all be over soon. Juliet took the half brick out of her bag, offering it to Pauline like a sacred object. Pauline dropped it into the foot of an old stocking, tying it off at the ankle. It hung between them like David's loaded sling. Once they killed Honora Reaper, then no one could keep them apart. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. 
we will be back Wednesday with part two of Pauline and Juliet's story. We'll discuss the girls' brutal crime that sent shockwaves through the tiny island nation of New Zealand. For more information on Juliet Hume and Pauline Parker, amongst the many sources we used, we found the book Anne Perry and the Murder of the Century by Peter Graham to be extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion, as well as all other Spotify originals from Parcast on Spotify or your favorite podcast directory. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Megan Hannum, with writing assistance by Terrell Wells, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. I'm Lainey Hobbs. Hey there, Carter again. Before you go, remember to check out my new podcast limited series, Hollywood Scandals. In anticipation of the Oscars, we're unearthing some of the most sordid controversies in showbiz history. Tune in every Monday. Follow Hollywood Scandals free only on Spotify.